morning. Let's get at it. Why don't you grab your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to start around verse 15 and we'll jump back and pick up a few verses. But go and grab your Bible, turn there, turn your app on, however you choose to read God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift to you this morning. I encourage you to take that. You can take it home with you if you don't own a copy of God's Word. And again, if you're new or maybe been away for a period of time, we as a church, we're walking straight through the letter of 1 John. John the Apostle writes to a group of churches, and we have that preserved for us by the Spirit of God, and we're walking right through it for our encouragement and our strengthening. And if you've been reading through 1 John, that's one of the things we're doing together. We're reading through this. have a reading plan you can follow along. It's on the app. We have a paper copy. Uh, if you're reading through along 1 John with us, you know it's tough. 1 John is very direct, and he's very bold, and he's very clear, and we need that, as Anthony said earlier, but man, we're coming to a passage this morning that is especially challenging to us, and we're talking about these things in our life groups, hearing some great stories of what's going on in life groups, and then if you don't have a study group to connect with, Wednesday night, 6.30, uh, right here in this building, we have something called Behind the Message, and we'll do just that. We'll go behind this message that you hear on Sunday Explain it a little more, dive down in, Q&A kind of thing, and just break the message apart even more. It's a great opportunity for you on Wednesday night called Behind the Message. All right? So let me set up for just a minute what we're going to be reading here in just a minute, and then I'll read from God's Word. Uh, I want to set it up this way, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you, so to speak, a disclaimer. This is a heavy illustration. The illustration goes this way. Uh, 2008, the world experienced one of the most severe economic collapses in history. We felt it here in the United States in many ways as uh, executives and corporations and lost millions and millions of dollars because of an economic downturn. And it wasn't felt just here in America, it was felt all over the world. And home values plummeted and investments tanked and all those things happened and companies went out of business and it was a very dark time, so to speak, economically in 2008. As a result of that, that year, there was a string of prominent, well-known corporate executives, very influential, very wealthy men and women who took their own lives. Here's some examples. One was the CFO of Freddie Mac, took his own life in 2008 in the basement of his home. He determined that the world that he knew and what he loved and everything he had invested his life in was gone. There was nothing left to live for. A prominent money man manager who lost $1.4 billion of his investors' money took his own life in his Madison Avenue office in Manhattan. A Bear Stearns executive took a drug overdose and jumped out of the 29th floor of his office building in New York City. Determining all that I built my life on and all that I've held on to so dearly is now gone. And the sand that I've built my life on has been washed away. There's nothing left to live for. Chief executives of Sheldon Good, HSBC Bank, many others took their own lives as well. And the tragedy of this story is 
not that the problem was that they had wealth, not that they had success, not that they were influential, but they had begun to love the things of the world and the promises of the things of the world. And when the foundation of sand that they built their life on was washed away, they had nothing left. They took their own life. It's interesting that same year, 2008, I had the opportunity to travel to communist Laos. I had the opportunity to sit alongside some men and women who were followers of Jesus Christ. And in communist Laos, it cost them everything to follow Christ. And I was sitting in a group of believers. I was sitting with wives whose husbands were not there because they had been killed by the communist authorities in Laos for naming the name of Jesus. I was sitting aside some other brothers and sisters who had literally been kicked out of their village. They had lost their homes. They had lost everything that they owned for the name of Jesus. So in a sense, everything that the world had to offer had been taken from them. And I distinctly remember I wrote into my journal. I said to these brothers and sisters in Christ, how can I pray for you? You've lost everything, humanly speaking. And they said, will you please pray that we remain faithful to God and to make Jesus Christ known? So here's two entirely different groups of people that, humanly speaking, lost everything of value, humanly speaking, and their response was entirely different. How can that be? First John's going to help us this morning. The section we're reading in First John helps us understand, okay, how do I, as a believer, live in this world around me that's a fallen world and all the promises this world makes and all the claims that this world makes how do I live in this fallen world so just read with me I'm going to start in verse 15 down through verse 17 with that introduction you'll understand why John writes with great love and great affection to these believers here in this church he says do not love the world He doesn't say don't have the things of the world. He's not saying it's wrong to have things. You, you understand that? This is not poverty gospel kind of thing. That's not the point. But he says don't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the things of the world, and here's what that reveals about him or her, that the love of the Father is not in them. See, that. The appeal of the things of the world is only defeated by a greater affection of something better. The love of God. Verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world. And then he gives a matrix of temptation and a, and a pathology, if you will, as John MacArthur says, of all the temptations that are thrown at us. Every temptation can fall under one of these categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Not from the Father, but it's from the world. And by the way, John says, just, rem just remember, as your heart drifts toward these temporal things of the world, the world is passing away. Sand. And also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God, true believers, live forever. Eternal life of God is in us. 
this is challenging. This is heavy for us living in our Western culture where the draw of the world is continually hammering at our heart's door. I want to give you a big truth and then we're going to try to walk through some big ideas and make it real practical in your life. So here's, as best I could put this together of what John seems to be saying here, here's the big truth and it goes like this, that those who know the true believers, those who know the unchanging and perfect love of God, do not love the temporary and futile things of this passing world. Their loves will be different. Their affections will look different. Doesn't mean the pull's not there. Doesn't mean the temptations are not there. Doesn't mean the stumble's not there. Doesn't mean seasons of sin are not there and all those things. But the characterization of our life is we love something greater. Something eternal. What do we do with this? If you've been reading through 1 John, John uses a particular word and he uses it in different ways depending on the context. Remember, a word only has a particular meaning in a particular context. So John, here when you say don't love the world, what do you mean, John? Jesus helps us with this and Jesus uses the word world in some of the same ways in John 3, or in the Gospel of John. So you don't have to look these up. I'm just going to quote Jesus here. Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So, up, <laughs> oh, I found a contradiction in, Bi- in the Bible. Did you see that? No, when it says God loves the world, he's talking about the people of the world for whom Jesus died. We are to love the people of the world for whom Jesus died. See that? You say, well, okay, well, maybe he's talking about the cosmos, then the understanding of all the created world. Well, that's not true because Psalm says that the world and all this in it is created for the glory of God. I mean, we behold the created world and it's to awaken our hearts to the ultimate creator behind the world. So it's not to hate the things of the world that God has created. That's not what this means so what does this mean Jesus said in John 17 6 he says believers are those who the father has given him out of the world John 17 14 Jesus says to his followers don't you be surprised when the world hates you (laughs) because it hated me Jesus said okay That helps a little. John 17, 15. Now this is huge because we miss this. Jesus said to his father, he was praying, he said, Father, do not take them out of the world. Speaking of believers, us. Don't take them out of the world, but Lord, keep them from the evil one. Many Christians have totally misinterpreted 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world to mean this. Okay, I'm not going to love the world and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my little Christian subculture and I'm going to insulate myself from the world. That's not the idea of 1 John 2, 15. Say, you sure about that? Let me tell you what Jesus said. John 17, 18, Jesus said, as the Father sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world you got a mission in the world. 
So if you think the objective of believers is to build some kind of subculture and live in this little bubble waiting for Jesus to return, that's not what Jesus said. So that's not the idea of do not love the world. Okay, well then help me. What, what does all this mean? Here's what he seems to mean in this context. I'm going to give you a really good big old fat definition, all right, of what he means when he says the world. It's going to be up on the screen. We'll walk through this. I think this will help you. This is not a reference to the physical material universe created by God for his glory. All right, I've already said that. Nor is it a reference to the people of the world for whom Jesus died. But when John says world here, do not love world, it refers to the invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan, characterized by rebellion toward God, a distortion of his purposes, and hatred of his people. When John says world here, don't love this world system that is under the control of the enemy that appeals to our base nature of the flesh, that rebels against everything of God, that distorts everything of God. That's the world system that you live in. And John says don't love that world and don't love the promises of that world because the promises of that world may seem very appealing in the moment, but the promises of the world never are able to keep the promises that they make. Francis de Tocqueville, or Alexis de Tocqueville, was French and he came to the United States and he said this, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the longings of the human heart. The world throws lies at us and the world has its systems and the world has all its ways of thinking that are in opposition to God and his purposes and his glory and ultimately for our good. We live in the midst of that system. Let's just be real honest with one another for a minute. If you're a true believer and you are walking in the light and the life of Christ is in you and you're desiring to honor and obey Him and be used by Him, you sometimes feel like you are walking in a river and the river is coming against you, doesn't it? That's because you're not of this world anymore. And the current of this world is working against you. That's the world system that you live in. And John says, don't love the things of this world that are temporal and passing away. And can't keep their promise of fulfillment. 1 John 5.19, John says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You live in a fallen world. So as best I can, I'm going to give you three or four big ideas. We're going to apply some of these verses and read through these verses again in 1 John and then try to apply them to our lives this morning. Let me give you a big idea. Number one is this. All human beings are born as children of this fallen world. <laughs> you, you were born a child of this fallen world. Where do you get that from? Ephesians chapter 2 says this. Paul's writing. He says, and he's writing to believers, and he says, and you were dead in sins and trespasses. Remember, verb tenses matter. Remember, he says, this used to be you. It's not you anymore. In which you once walked, verse 2, following the course of this world. That's the river picture again. The flow of this world and the course of this world is flowing this way. And before I came to know Christ, I was on the raft in the middle of that river going just the way the world was going. But when you become a believer, you throw the raft away, all things are new, and you start working against the current and you feel it. 
Paul says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh. And it wasn't just the external things of the world, Paul says. The reason the external things of the world were appealing is because your fallen heart that was within. The reason the things of the world appeal is because of our fallen heart and our sinfulness within. We're all born that way. We're born fallen. C.S. Lewis said, man, this is a strong quote. He said, fallen mankind is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's all of us. We weren't just products of a system. We were part of it. But. But. Big idea number two. Jesus' followers have been redeemed out of this fallen world and into the very kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes on. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, that's shouting ground. We were born as slaves of this world system. We were flowing along in the river of this world system. But God in his grace pulled us out by this Love of the Lord Jesus Christ paid our sin debt, credited us his righteousness, and watch, has seated us with him in the heavenly places of Christ. You got a new citizenship in heaven, brothers and sisters. You, are, you got a passport that says my home is no longer of this world. It is now the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Say, I don't own that passport. Yeah, you do. It's called the Bible. <laughs> it says it in the Bible, right? You, you'll get that later. Now watch. Here's the tension. We're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. we got a citizenship in heaven. We're part of the kingdom of God. But we still live in this fallen world. Right? You still got to go to work in this fallen world. You still got to do business in this fallen world. You still got to raise your family in this fallen world. You still got to live in a sense in this river that now you're going against the current of this, this world, that river, the, the world system coming against you. How do we as believers who have been redeemed out of this world now live in this fallen world? That's what John helps us with here. That's kind of a broad introduction to, to read through some of these verses. But I want you to understand, what does he mean when he says, do not love the world? We live in this fallen world. So what John's going to do is he's going to speak some truth to us in verses 12 through 14. We're going to look at that quickly. And then, man, he's going to get really practical with some encouragement and challenge in verses 15 through 17. So look with me back up verse 12, 1 John 2. John writes to these believers surrounded by the world system of Rome and their day. And these false teachers had come in and they were spilling all their lies, the lies of the world. And John writes to encourage them here, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, when all the accusations of the enemy come flying to hold out the reality that in Christ your slate is clean. Your sins have been forgiven. You're forgiven. 
Not because you were good, not because you earned it, not because you, you know, and all that works. No, no, for his name's sake, end of verse 12. The reason you're forgiven is because of the righteous person and work of Jesus Christ. Drop the name of Christ, meaning ultimate name drop. Why in the world would God love me? Why in the world would I be made worthy? Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what you got to hang on to. John goes on, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers. John identifies at least three different groups there in the church, and it's not based on their their literal age. He's kind of talking about their spiritual maturity. He seems to write to different stages of spiritual growth. He refers to some as little children. Now here he refers to fathers, those that are maturing in their faith. They're seasoned in their faith. They've been walking with God for a long time. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him from the beginning. And that, that word know is a perfect tense verb that means you came to know him and the abiding influence of that presses into your life today. You have walked with God. And you've come to find him faithful. I'm writing to you young men. That word young men seems to be those. They're not brand new to the faith and they're not seasoned in their maturity. They're you're younger in their faith and they're growing. But he says, I'm running to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. He reminds them, you live in the world that's under the control of the evil one. And he's throwing you those accusations. And he throws those lies at you. And he dangles the enticement of the things of the world. But you remember a truth about you. You have overcome the power of the world. Doesn't mean the temptations won't be there. In fact, they'll be stronger doesn't mean the lure of the world is not going to be there, but you now have a power in you to overcome the world, and ultimately you will overcome the enemy when Jesus returns, but until then, you have the very power of Christ living within you. You're not who you used to be. You've seen some victories in your life, and you've seen some changes, and you see things differently, and you're, you're growing, and that's who he seems to be writing here. And he says, I've written to you, fathers, verse 14, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men. He says it again, because you are strong. And the, why are they strong? I love this. End of verse 14. And the word of God is abiding, present tense, is abiding in you. And you've overcome the evil one. John gets very practical and he says, here's, positionally you've overcome the evil one because of your faith in Christ. You're seated in the heavens. One day he will crush the serpent under his feet. We know that. But in your daily life you have the power to overcome every one of those temptations. You have the power to push back those lies. You have the power to see the lies and the temptations for what they are. You have the capacity to overcome. How do you practically do that? Here's your big idea number three. Ready? God's truth in us empowers Jesus' followers to overcome the lies of the world. He's speaking to followers here, and he says particularly, and I'll just focus on one group here, this group of young men. He says, says, you have overcome. The word overcome is literally the word nikeo. We get the word Nike from it. It's the idea of overcomers in Christ. He says, practically you're daily overcoming the snares and the temptations and the things of this world how he makes it very clear verse 14 because the word of God is abiding in you it doesn't get any more practical than this you ready he says yes know what's true you are forgiven you know God 
But on a daily basis, the Word of God is abiding in your very being. And as you study and feast and read and nourish your soul on the Word of God, it's changing the way you think. It's changing the way you look, it, or the way you look at things. It's changing your outlook. It's changing everything about you. You are stronger. He says, because the Word of God is in your daily life. Isn't that, some of you know that to be true. Some of you stand up on the stage to give testimony of that. Man, I came to know Christ years ago, and the Word of God, I began to get in my life, you'd say, and now my life's different. I'm str- there's strength that comes from burying myself in the Word of God. I got an awesome text just yesterday from one of our life group guides, Andrew Daniel, here at our church. And he had shared with me that the men in his life group, they were taking this First John reading plan, and they, for 60 or 90 days, had promised and committed to just read through God's Word every day. They'd text each other and keep each other accountable and challenge one another. And he wrote back, and here's what he said. The consequences and result of that are incredible. He says, by constantly or consistently reading God's word, we've seen a massive change in our group. Marriages have been transformed. Addictions have been broken. Joy in Jesus is being achieved daily. Men who once were hesitant to share in the group are now leading out. They're busting the seams to share each week with what they're learning from God's Word. Listen to this. As a group of six men, we were committed to spending time pouring over the Word of God on a regular basis. Because we genuinely wanted to grow closer to God, but we didn't want to let our brothers down either. He says this. He says, the word of God has taken six guys and transformed us into six men. (laughs) He says, if you don't believe me, just ask our wives. (laughs) What John's saying here, he says, listen, you're going to be surrounded by the lies of the world, the snares of the world, and temptations of the world. The only way you're going to win the battle on a daily basis is you bury your life in the living word of God. Is that true for you? True for us. He continues on with this exhortation and then he goes on, he says, This is how we battle the lies of the enemy, but then how do we consistently battle all the temptations that are out there? And we'll wrap it up on this. Here's big idea number four, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Big idea number four is this that God's love for us enables Jesus' followers to overcome the temptations of this world. Let's go back to verse 15 again. Let's read it again. In light of all this, it says this. John writes, he says, do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, a love for the things of the world indicates the absence of the love of God in our lives. We've never come to know God. And the flip side of that is true. The presence of the love of God in our lives is what will empower us to defeat the temptations of the world. You've got to have a greater love. You've got to have a greater love. How does the love of the Father enable us to practically battle the temptations of the world? And to tell you, it doesn't get more practical than this because Monday morning, I'm sorry, now, you walk out of this building, even in our, in our minds now, the temptations come at us, don't they? And if you think you can insulate yourself from those temptations, remember, the source of those temptations starts with us, with our fallen nature. And then the, then the enticement of those things are all that is in the world. How do you battle that? You've got to have a greater love. I'll give you an example. 
Number one is this. i just give you a few truths. Number one, the perfect love of God weakens the grip of lesser loves in the world. We read this earlier, 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God. John says, man, the love of God is so immense. I'm loved. Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The love of God gives me the power and the strength to walk in purity and resist the temptations of the world. Tell you something. Temptations are coming. You say, when my foot hits the bed, or my foot hits the bed. Well, you kick your bed. I don't know. When, you, when your foot hits the floor out of your bed, listen, you don't even have to get out of bed. You wake up. John's basically saying, listen, every morning you fix the focus of your soul on something better. Something enduring Something that lasts. You begin your days with the word of God penetrating your soul and worship of him who is ultimate. And over time, the temporary lures and allurements and temptations of the world, do they go away? No, but they become less appealing. The things of this world grow strangely dim. Sounds like a good song. It is a song. One of you knew that. Thomas Calmer said this. He says, the best way to defeat sin is not strength of will. I'm going to try harder to do better. Watch me. All right. But it is to replace our desire for lesser things with a greater desire for Jesus. Ultimately, as believers, if the if the world continues to have this strong grip on us in a consistent way, number one, it reveals we don't know Christ at all, or number two, we have a love and a worship problem with King Jesus. It's a worship issue. The love of the Father enables us to reject the temptations of the world. Number two, quickly, the perfect love of God weakens the grip, uh, the grip of the things that oppose God. Now look at verse 16 again. I'm just going to tell you, you want a practical verse to memorize and put on your wall and understand the matrix of temptation? John MacArthur calls it the pathology of temptation. It's right here in verse 16, man. This, is, this pulls back the curtain of the way temptation operates. Every temptation you face in this world will fit under one of these three categories that you see in 1 John, 3, or 1 John 2, 16. This is such wisdom from God. He says, verse 16, For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, what does it mean? We'll come back to that. Lust of the eyes, that's the second one. This boastful pride of life, that's the third one. All these things, they're not from God, but they're from the world. What are these things? Remember, the, nation, the nature of temptation works this way. This is so practical, you've got to hear this. James chapter 1 says that we are enticed and carried away by our own lusts. The nature of temptation works this way. Our flesh still, the things of the world still appeal to our flesh, our fallen nature. Our flesh doesn't get any better, by the way. 
Only Jesus in us is what makes the difference. And one day we get a new body and a new all, everything. And imagine the day that we're not tempted to sin and all this old flesh is gone. It's coming. But for now we struggle. And the nature of temptation is this. There's the external enticements and there's the internal fallen desires. In James chapter 1, you can write it down, verse 13 and 14, just go look it up on your own, says it works like this, it works like a fisherman. Each of us are carried away and we're enticed, that's like a fisherman, by our own lust. So a fisherman, he gets a, he gets a good old uh, a lure or a piece of bait and he drops it down in the water. And there's a fish over here somewhere that's really hungry and internally they see that bait and whammo! Listen, if I tie a rock on the end of the string, drop it down in the water, that fish is probably not going to be very tempted by that rock. Probably. Watch this. You ever gone fishing and not caught anything? That's my life. Okay. And man, I get the best bait, and Dale Morton back here, he takes me, and I blame it on him because he takes me to bad places. But anyway, I, I got the best bait, and I drop it out there, and I'm thinking all these fish are just going to come swarming at that bait, and I get nothing. I don't even get a hit. You know why? Somehow, someway, those fish are satisfied. They don't even, that bait's not appealing to them. See, if your soul is satisfied on the things of eternal nature of God, I don't care what enticement the devil drops in front of you. See? Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, pride of life. And quickly, what do these mean? What does this look like in our lives? Number one, the lust of the flesh. Here's how that works. The lust of the flesh is the distortion of God-given appetites. It's just our base appetites. It's the things we need. We need food. God's given us a hunger for food. We need intimacy. We want fellowship. God's given us a desire for that. We want rest. There's some base desires in our human body. God put them there. Sin corrupts them. You understand the nature of sin? Satan doesn't go around inventing sin. He just takes things God has created and distorts them. That's the way it works. So he takes our base desires as human beings and says, okay, I'm going to distort those, I'm going to twist those, and you can satisfy those base desires in some way other than God's provision and God's best. That's the way it works. And we believe it. For example, God's given us a desire for food. The lust of the flesh turns it into gluttony. God's given us a desire for intimacy. The lust of the flesh turns it into pornography and immorality. God's given us a desire for rest. The lust of the flesh turns it into an obsession with comfort. See? He says there's the lust of the eyes. Well, what is that? Well, the lust of the eyes comes at us, and the enemy sends things to us that appeal to this, this sinfulness within us. The lust of the eyes is the distortion of God-given affections. What does that mean? God's given us the capacity to behold beauty. He's created things that are beautiful, and we can behold them. We can see them through our eyes, and we're intended to turn those back to worship to the Creator and thankfulness to the Creator. But the lust of the eyes begins us to look at the created things, and all we want is more, more, more. 
And it's no longer thankfulness and it's no longer appreciation. We want more for ourselves. Just take, for example, the beauty of the human body. The lust of the eyes takes it and distorts it into selfish pornography for my own sick lusts. It's the lust of the eyes. The resources and the things God has blessed us with on this earth, the lust of the eyes, takes all these things and turns them into greed and covetousness. And here's what it looks like. Ready? What does it take to satisfy? Just a little bit more. It's all I need. Just a little bit more. My happiness is on the other side of that next purchase. My happiness is on the next other side of that whatever. And the lust of the eyes is never satisfied. And then you got the boastful pride of life. And this is really the taproot of all of them. Boastful pride of life is a distortion of our God-given calling. And it means this. God created every human being to be an image bearer of the greatness and the glory of God. We are created. This is huge. We are created not to be beheld. We are created to behold that which is intimate. But the enemy distorts this within us and the world poses and dangles all the enticements around us that says, no, 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 no. Joy is when you are the center and everyone beholds you and the world is about you and you get your way and your rights and you ought to be offended because you didn't get what you deserve. And subtly, we would never say it. But this is no different than the sin of Satan from Isaiah chapter 14. Satan himself was created as Lucifer, an angel of light, and his very body was created to behold the glory of God and reflect the glory of God. That's why he was created. And in Isaiah 14, he says, I will be like God. I'm going to take the place of God. And so do we. And it turns this, it turns this, gift that we're given to be a reflector of that which is ultimate and we place ourselves in the seat of that which is ultimate and we want to be beheld can I give you a quick example I'm chasing the tangent here and I'll confess it do you uh, you ever wonder why really famous people who are looked at all the time and have all these followers and people are always looking and behold you ever wonder why some of these famous people just go nuts right you just go crazy you know why Your soul was not created to be beheld. And in fact, if you so structure your life to be the object and to be beheld, it poisons your very soul. I love social media. I use it. Social media is a great tool to communicate back and forth, to get information out. But social media so appeals to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Because I can, I can communicate out everything about me. And I have X number of followers who are beholding me. And man, it appeals to our flesh and our sin nature. And watch this. But over time, it poisons your soul. You just go back and look at your last few tweets or whatever. If they're all about you. And can I just be honest? I don't really care what you had for dinner last night. I don't. I don't care if you had a good workout, and please don't take a picture of the gym flexing and say, I had a good workout today. Oh, really? Come on, man. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, boastful pride of life. Now, the time we have left, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you two examples of the way this pl plays out. 
Number one, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to take you back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve existed in a perfect environment, perfect surroundings, perfect intimacy with God. And the Bible says that the, the tempter came to tempt them. And God had said, listen, you have everything you want, everything you need, everything you could ever imagine is here. Except that one tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil, just stay away from that. God had a reason for that. You say, well, why did he tempt them to disobey what that tree wasn't? He was giving them an opportunity to obey. Every temptation is an opportunity to obey. Sorry, that was a tangent too. So go ahead. And tempter came, and here's what he says. He's tempted to say, God, God can't be trusted. God didn't really say that. God is limiting to you. Just trust me. And here's, here was the nature of the temptation. I'm in it for you, Eve. God's cheating you. You satisfy those desires and those cravings and that identity in some way other than what God has designed for you. And then you'll be really happy, Eve. You trust me. And here's what happened. Genesis 3, verse 6 says this. Now listen. Remember, lust the flesh, lust the eyes, boastful pride of life. Remember that? Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, her appetites that God had placed in her are now corrupted. And Satan says, you can satisfy this naturally occurring appetite for food in a way that doesn't honor God and outside God's best. She saw that it was good for food. That's not enough. Then it was a delight to the eyes. Lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, meaning I will have the wisdom of God. Satan goes on and says, you'll be like God, having the knowledge of good and evil. I'll be like God and I'll be beheld. I'll be the object. Boastful pride of life. All right there. By the way, the strategies of your enemy haven't changed. Here they are. And this is coming at you. And let me take you to another example, very quickly, and we'll close. In fact, the team can come on up and just begin to play softly. Stay with me. Don't. Let me take you to another example. It's in Matthew chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, but you can look this up on your own later, and I hope you do. Jesus. You say, well, Jesus, he's perfect, man. He didn't sin. Did Jesus face temptation? You better believe it. It says he was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Not to sin, but to demonstrate obedience. And he says three things happened. The serpent came to Jesus, and the tempter came to him. And by the way, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. You ever fasted for 40 days? When you get to day 41, I'm told, you go into a death hunger, and if you don't eat soon, you're going to die. So he hadn't eaten for 40 days, and the tempter comes to him and says, If you really are the Son of God, you deserve better than this. That was the nature of it. Command these stones become bread. In other words, use your Messiahship, who you are, to appeal to the lust of your own desire, so to speak, to meet this physical need in some way other than God has designed for you. Lust of the flesh. And Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone. I got something better, he says. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The language of the soul of Jesus was the truth of God's word. 
Secondly, the enemy came to him and says, okay, I'm going to take you up on a very high mountain and look at all the kingdoms of the world. They can be yours, the lust of the eyes. Just look at all this. It can be yours, Jesus. Just follow me. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I got something better to worship than what you can offer me. Thirdly, took him up on the pinnacle of the temple, 40 feet up. Everybody looked and said, okay, Jesus, you'll throw yourself off this temple? Watch. According to Psalms, the angels will come and you'll just flow down to the ground. And everybody will go, oh, and they'll follow you. And you can achieve this messiahship stuff that you want, but you don't have to go to the cross. You can achieve God's calling in your life by a means other than the way designed by God. Just throw yourself off. And Jesus said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. See that? And Jesus Christ, because of his relationship with his Father, his heart was so saturated with the Word, and yes, he's the perfect being, and I get all that. That same Jesus lives in you. Same word is given to you. The same spirit dwells within you. You can overcome the snares and the lies and the temptations of this world because Jesus has overcome the world. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's hard when you're fighting against the current of the river. How do you ever ultimately stop loving the world if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ? The only way is this you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born out of this current world that you were born into, into the kingdom of God. And that comes in one way, by faith and believing, repenting from that world and embracing the person and work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And He makes all things new. Amen? Child of God, Paul said, walk in the Spirit and I'll not carry out the lust of the flesh. Power of the Spirit. Power of fellowship around us, keeping one another accountable and challenging one another to press on in our faith. Don't try to do this alone. You need one another. Don't love the world, the things of the world. The love of God is exceedingly better. Bow your head for a minute. Let me pray for you. We're going to stand and sing. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the painfully practical truth of 1 John. Lord, change our hearts. I pray for anyone here today who is deeply loving the things of the world because they don't know you. God, would you open their eyes to see Jesus as altogether better. And Lord, would you strengthen the saints here to walk in the power of the Spirit for your glory and your namesake and take the light of the gospel into this fallen world for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.